Chapter 53 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 53. Many days passed away, however, without Albert's wish being accomplished. It was in vain that Consuelo rose before the dawn and passed the drawbridge. She always found his aunt or the chaplain wandering on the esplanade, and from thence reconnoitering all the open country which she must traverse in order to gain the copsewood on the hill. She determined to walk alone within range of their observation and give up the project of joining Albert, who, from his green and wooded retreat, recognized the enemy on the lookout, took a long walk in the forest glades, and re-entered the castle without being perceived. You have had an opportunity of enjoying an early walk, Signora Porporina, said the canoness at breakfast. Were you not afraid that the dampness of the morning might be injurious to your health? It was I, aunt, who advised the Signora to breathe the freshness of the morning air, and I think these walks will be very useful to her. I should have thought that, for a person who devotes herself to the cultivation of the voice, said the canoness, with a little affectation, our mornings are somewhat foggy. But if it is under your direction... Have confidence in Albert, interrupted Count Christian. He has proved himself as good a physician as he is a good son and a faithful friend. The dissimulation to which Consuela was forced to yield with blushes was very painful to her. She complained gently to Albert when she had an opportunity of speaking to him in private, and begged him to renounce his project, at least until his aunt's vigilance should be foiled. Albert consented, but entreated her to continue her walks in the environs of the park, so that he might join her whenever an opportunity presented itself. Consuela would gladly have been excused, although she liked walking and felt how necessary to her convalescence it was, to enjoy exercise for some time every day, free from the restraint of this enclosure of walls and moats, where her thoughts were stifled as if she had been a prisoner. Yet it gave her pain thus to practice deception toward those whom she respected and from whom she received hospitality. Love, however, removes many obstacles, but friendship reflects, and Consuelo reflected much. They were now enjoying the last fine days of summer, for several months had already passed since Consuelo had come to dwell in the castle of the giants. What a summer for Consuelo! The palest autumn of Italy was more light and rich and genial, but this warm, moist air, this sky often veiled by white and fleecy clouds, had also their charm and their peculiar beauty. She found an attraction in these solitary walks, which increased, perhaps, her disinclination to revisit the cavern. In spite of the resolution she had formed, she felt that Albert would have taken a load from her bosom in giving her back her promise, and when she found herself no longer under the spell of his supplicating looks and enthusiastic words, she secretly blessed his good aunt, 
who prevented her fulfilling her engagement by the obstacles she every day placed in the way. One morning, as she wandered along the bank of the mountain streamlet, she observed Albert leaning on the balustrade of the parterre, far above her. Notwithstanding the distance which separated them, she felt as if incessantly under the disturbed and passionate gaze of this man, by whom she suffered herself in so great a degree to be governed. My situation here is somewhat strange, she exclaimed, while this persevering friend observes me to see that I am faithful to the promise I have made, without doubt I am watched from some other part of the castle, to see that I maintain no relations with him, that their customs and ideas of propriety would proscribe. I do not know what is passing in their minds. The Baroness Amelia does not return. The canoness appears to grow cold toward me, and to distrust me. Count Christian redoubles his attention, and expresses his dread of the arrival of Porpora, which will probably be the signal for my departure. Albert appears to have forgotten that I forbade him to hope, as if he had a right to expect everything from me. He asks nothing, and does not abjure a passion which seems, notwithstanding my inability to return it, to render him happy. In the meantime, here I am, as if I were engaged in attending every morning at an appointed place of meeting, to which I wish he may not come, exposing myself to the blame, nay, for aught I know, perhaps to the scorn, of a family who cannot understand either my friendship for him nor my position toward him, since, indeed, I do not comprehend them myself nor foresee their result. What a strange destiny is mine! Shall I then be condemned forever to devote myself to others without being loved in return, or without being able to love those whom I esteem? In the midst of these reflections, a profound melancholy seized her. She felt the necessity of belonging to herself, that sovereign and legitimate want, the necessary condition of progress and development of the true artist, the watchful care which he had promised to observe toward Count Albert, weighed upon her as an iron chain. The bitter recollections of Anzaletto and of Venice clung to her in the inaction and solitude of a life too monotonous and regular for her powerful organization. She stopped near the rock which Albert had often shown her as being the place where he had first seen her, an infant, tied with thongs on her mother's shoulders like the peddler's pack, and running over mountains and valleys like the grasshopper of the fable, heedless of the morrow, and without a thought of advancing old age and inexorable poverty. Oh, my poor mother, thought the young Cinderella, here am I, brought back by my incomprehensible fate to a spot which you once traversed, only to retain a vague recollection of it and the pledge of a touching kindness. You were then young and handsome, and doubtless could have met many a place where love and hospitality would have awaited you. Society, which would have absolved and transformed you, and in the bosom of which your painful and wandering life would have at last tasted comfort and repose. But you felt, and always said, that this comfort, this repose, 
were mortal weariness to the artist's soul. You were right, I feel it. For behold me in this castle, where, as elsewhere, you would pause but one night. Here I am, with every comfort around me, pampered, caressed, and with a powerful lord at my feet. And nevertheless, I am weary, weary, and suffocated with restraint. Consuelo, overpowered with an extraordinary emotion, seated herself on the rock. She looked at the sandy path, as if she thought to find there the prints of her mother's naked feet. The sheep in passing had left some locks of their fleece upon the thorns. This fleece, of a reddish brown, recalled the russet hue of her mother's coarse mantle. That mantle, which had so long protected her against sun and cold, against dust and rain. She had seen it fall from her shoulders piece by piece. And we too, she said, were wandering sheep. We too left fragments of our apparel on the wayside thorn. But we always bore with us the proud love and full enjoyment of our dear liberty. While musing thus, Consuela fixed her eyes upon the path of yellow sand which wound gracefully over the hill, and which, widening as it reached the valley, disappeared toward the north among the green pine trees and the dark heath. What is more beautiful than a road, she thought. It is the symbol and image of a life of activity and variety. What pleasing ideas are connected in my mind with the capricious turns of this. I do not recollect the country through which it winds, and yet I have formerly passed through it. But it should indeed be beautiful, were it only as a contrast to yonder dark castle, which sleeps eternally on its immovable rocks. How much pleasanter to the eye are these graveled paths, with their glowing hues and the golden broom which shadow them, than the straight alleys and stiff palings of the proud domain. With merely looking at the formal lines of a garden, I feel wearied and overcome. Why should my feet seek to reach that which my eyes and thoughts can at once embrace, while the free road, which turns aside and is half-hidden in the woods, invites me to follow its windings and penetrate its mysteries, and that it is the path for all humankind, it is the highway of the world. It belongs to no master, to close and open it at pleasure. It is not only the powerful and rich that are entitled to tread its flowery margins and to breathe its rich perfume. Every bird may build its nest amid its branches. Every wanderer may repose his head upon its stones. No wall nor paling shuts out his horizon. Heaven does not close before him. So far as his eye can reach, the highway is a land of liberty. To the right, to the left, woods, fields, all have masters. But the road belongs to him to whom nothing else belongs. And how fondly, therefore, does he love it. The meanest beggar prefers it to asylums, which, were they rich as palaces, would be but prisons to him. His dream, his passion, his hope will ever be the highway. Oh, my mother, you knew it well and often told me so. Why can I not reanimate your ashes, which repose far from me, beneath the seaweed of the lagoons? Why canst thou not carry me on thy strong shoulders, and bear me far, far away, 
where the swallow skims onward to the blue and distant hills, and where the memory of the past and the longing after banished happiness cannot follow the light-footed artist, who travels still faster than they do, and each day places a new horizon, a second world, between her and the enemies of liberty. My poor mother, why canst thou not still by turns cherish and oppress me, and lavish alternate kisses and blows, like the wind which sometimes caresses and sometimes lays prostrate the young corn upon the fields, to raise and cast it down again according to its fantasy. Thou hadst a firmer soul than mine, and thou wouldst have torn me, either willingly or by force, from the bonds which daily entangle me. In the midst of this entrancing yet mournful reverie, Consuela was struck by the tones of a voice that made her start as if a red-hot iron had been placed upon her heart. It was that of a man from the ravine below, humming in the Venetian dialect the song of the echo, one of the most original compositions of Chiosetto. Footnote, Juan Croce di Chioggio, 16th century. The person who sung did not exert the full power of his voice, and his breathing seemed affected by walking. He warbled a few notes now and then, stopping from time to time to converse with another person, just as if he had wished to dissipate the weariness of his journey. He then resumed his song as before, as if by way of exercise, interrupted it again to speak to his companion, and in this manner approached the spot where Consuelo sat, motionless and as if about to faint. She could not hear the conversation which took place, as the distance was too great, nor could she see the travelers in consequence of an intervening projection of the rock. But could she be for an instant deceived in that voice, in those accents, which she knew so well, and the fragrance of that song which she herself had taught, and so often made her graceless pupil repeat? At length, the two invisible travelers drew near, and she heard one whose voice was unknown to her say to the other in bad Italian and with the patois of the country, Ah, Signor, do not go up there. The horses could not follow you, and you would lose sight of me. Keep by the banks of the stream. See, the road lies before us, and the way you are taking is only a path for foot passengers. The voice which Consuelo knew became more distant and appeared to descend, and soon she heard him ask what fine castle that was on the other side. That is Riesenberg, which means the castle of the giants, replied the guide, for he was one by profession, and Consuelo could now distinguish him at the bottom of the hill, on foot and leading two horses covered with sweat. The bad state of the roads, recently inundated by the torrent, had obliged the riders to dismount. The traveler followed at a little distance, and Consuelo could at length see him by leaning over the rock which protected her. His back was toward her, and he wore a traveling dress, which so altered his appearance and even his walk, that had she not heard his voice, she could not have recognized him. He stopped, however, to look at the castle, and taking off his broad-leafed hat, wiped his face with his handkerchief. 
although only able to distinguish him imperfectly from the great height at which he was placed, she knew at once those golden and flowing locks, and recognized the movement he was accustomed to make in raising them from his forehead or neck when he was warm. This seems a very fine castle, said he. If I had time, I should like to ask the giants for some breakfast. Oh, do not attempt it, said the guide, shaking his head. The Rudolstadts only receive beggars and relations. Are they not more hospitable than that? May the devil seize them then. Listen, it is because they have something to conceal. A treasure or a crime? Oh, nothing of that kind. It is their son who is mad. Deuce take him too, then. It would do them a service. The guide began to laugh. Anzoletto commenced to sing. Come, said the guide. We are now over the worst of the road. If you wish to mount, we may gallop as far as Tusta. The road is magnificent, nothing but sand. Once there, you will find the highway to Prague and excellent post horses. In that case, said Anzoletto, adjusting his stirrups, I may say the fiend sees thee too, for your jades, your mountain roads, and yourself are all becoming very tiresome. Thus speaking, he slowly mounted his nag, sunk the spurs in its side, and without troubling himself about the guide, who followed him with great difficulty, he darted off toward the north, raising great clouds of dust on that road which Consuelo had so long contemplated, and on which she had so little expected to see pass, like a fatal vision, the enemy of her life, the constant torture of her heart. She followed him with her eyes, in a state of stupor impossible to express, struck with disgust and fear, so long as she was within hearing of his voice, she had remained hidden and trembling. But when he disappeared, when she thought she had lost sight of him perhaps forever, she experienced only violent despair. She threw herself over the rock to see him for a longer time. The undying love which she cherished for him awoke again with fervor and she would have recalled him, but her voice died on her lips. The hand of death seemed to press heavily on her bosom. Her eyes grew dim. A dull noise, like the dashing of the sea, murmured in her ears, and falling exhausted at the foot of the rock, she found herself in the arms of Albert, who had approached without being perceived, and who bore her, apparently dying, to a most shading and secluded part of the mountain. End of chapter 53